0: God, you are here, and we are here to worship you. May we be conformed to your image through the sword of the Spirit, which is your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Boy, I'm, I'm, I'm confessing right now, I am so looking forward to when Carl comes back to teach Sunday school, because my voice is shot. Uh, <laughs> Cheers. Sorry. (laughs) Um, All right, so over the course of the past two weeks, uh, we've been asking questions about church. Uh, Simply put, there is much we could say about ecclesiological practices. Told you I was going to say that word today. Uh, And ecclesiological, by the way, just means the biblical study of the church. Uh, There's much to say about its history, for one. Uh, between the first century church and what we have today. We are a Southern Baptist church, which has a particular history that if we trace from the first century through the Reformation, the Reformation through the English persecution in, in the United Kingdom, to the America, to the traveling to the Americas, to the dilemma of whether or not to resist English rule, um, to the founding of the, the, the Baptist Convention of Autonomous Churches, which you'll... If you look up, existed for like a year, uh, to the cooperation of Baptists, to the issue of slavery, so on and so forth and so on. We, we've got ecclesial, ecclesiological practices that come from that history, that come from the first century spread all the way to today. For instance, why do you sit in pews? When did pews start being manufactured? Who came up with the idea to actually put a cushion on a pew? Because it used to be wooden benches. What, what did they sit on before there were pews? There's, there's traditions that exist because of that history, and that forms our ecclesiological practices. For instance, I'm wearing a microphone to amplify my voice. If I were in the 1800s, I would be in a much differently shaped room. I'd be shouting so that you could hear me, and I would probably always sound angry because my shouting voice sounds angry. But when we come together on the Lord's Day, when we gather to worship Jesus on a Sunday, we aren't so much concerned with Baptist history, though it is fascinating and worthy of our attention on other days of the week. Instead, we're concerned with God, His Word, His Gospel, His commands, and what He's put in His book, the Bible. So previously, we've answered the question what is the church? With a biblically-derived answer, the church is a people founded upon the gospel. I left that in the bulletin. I also left last week's. We discussed Paul's matters of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15. Then we answered the question, what is a church? With another biblically-derived answer, a church is a display of God's glory. And that's derived from Jesus' commands uh, for us to be visible, to be active, with Paul's reminder that we are Christ's ambassadors. And now we come to the hot topic, hot take, hot take. This is when everything when everything gets real, when uh, when stuff starts hitting the fan, right? Um, and we we face a difficult question because people answer this question with different measures of intensity, uh, with different flavors, um, and it's the question: What does the church do? Does it cast vision? Does it? Does it have really cool block parties? Does it have hazers and lasers, you know, smoke machines? Which, by the way, I was jokingly sending to Garnet a reason to buy a smoke machine. You can use a smoke machine to actually sanitize a whole room uh, with, with no circulation. Uh, so anyway, we might get it. We, we might get the hazer at some point, but, but not the lasers. <laughs> so, um, but what does a church do on the forefront Um, I want to say a side point. And this this side point is not the point, it's not one of your fill-ins, okay? Um, But this is the side point. The church does as Christ has commanded in his scriptures. What does the church do? What Jesus says you do. What does that mean, you might be asking yourself? Well, for our purposes, it means that we would do well to ask a question when we read the Bible. Is this what I'm reading, prescriptive, something I must do, or something descriptive, something that's been done? Because today we're going to be exploring a passage in Acts two forty-two to forty-seven. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Acts two, uh, Acts Acts chapter two, verses forty-two to forty-seven, and we're going to be exploring some descriptives and prescriptives. And Acts predominantly is a descriptive book. It's not really telling us what to do as much as it is this is what's happened. Um, a, a lot of particular denominations struggle through what's descriptive and prescriptive. And and there's, there's some ways to determine what's descriptive and prescriptive uh, when we look at the grander biblical narrative. Um, and whether or not it's repeated, right? If then if later in the New Testament we're commanded to have deacons, which we are, then we should have deacons. If we're commanded to have elders, then we should have elders. Oh, I just separated the offices, uh, Baptist Church. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so, um, but but before we read our text, right? I I want to I want to kind of go over some background because it colors the verses we're about to encounter. It colors. Some of the, the descriptive and prescriptive differences. Um, so Acts is written by the, uh, by, by, by the apostolic author, not the apostle, but the author, Luke. Luke also write the gospel of, or wrote the Gospel of Luke. He probably transcribed some of Paul's letters. He had a lot to do with the early church. Um, it's written to a gentleman by the name of Theophilus. In Acts 1, you can see in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and, and teach. So Luke is trying to create this historical account. He's trying to describe what happened. His goal is not so much prescribing, but when he does explain things, especially Jesus' parables, we determine what's prescribed not just what's described. But in Luke 1, 1 through 4, we find out that Theophilus is apparently somebody important. Uh, he refers to him as most excellent Theophilus, meaning that he was probably either a rich Christian benefactor or maybe even a ruler. Um, beyond that, we really have no idea who Theoph- Theophilus is. We know he has a really cool name. His name means love of God. Theo, God, God. Phyllis, meaning love meaning uh, love of, brotherly love. So he's got a cool name. You know, just rename your children, I guess. Um, but Luke 1 one through 4 says this to Theophilus. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word uh, have delivered them to us, it seemed... Good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So, the Gospel of Luke exists as a historical account of Jesus. It was Luke's whole goal. Why? Because it was delivered to him, and he wants it to be preserved for in this case, Theophilus, and potentially every other reader. And then we come to Acts. Uh, Acts 1 1 to 3. He writes again to the- Theophilus, saying, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days, and speaking About the kingdom of God. So that's the preface to Theophilus that we get in Acts. So uh, Luke is is an established author, right? He's got two books. How many books have you written? No, I'm just kidding. But but he's uh, he's trying to, uh, to preserve these facts, these descriptions, so that we in later generations can look back. So remembering that this book is meant to be another narrative, another orderly account, we know that this book is meant to describe more than prescribe. Setting, narrative flow, and occasion help us to define what, the, what the, this first century church went through and endured. The book, Acts specifically, sets the tone truly of the horrific sufferings Christians would endure once the pages of Acts closed. It's meant to be a window to the the beginning of an unimaginable persecution, a window into why Romans used live Christians as torches on city streets, to why martyrs would face lions and training gladiators' swords. Christians were target dummies for Roman soldiers. And for us to see how the gospel of Jesus Christ spread throughout the entire world, slipping through the fingers of the hand trying to extinguish it. But back to the beginning of the book, we find that Luke starts where he ended. Where Jesus ascends into heaven and the apostles are left bewildered at the sight, right? They're all standing there like turkeys, drowning in the rain. He went up there, right? Uh, what happened to him? So we we come to that point. the The angels appear. They say, "Why are you looking at the skies, guy?" Or he, he, he'll be coming back that way. But don't just stare up there now. Then they quickly replace the traitor Judas, retaining the number of twelve apostles with a man with a man named Matthias, and then they wait. Now beginning chap, chapter two. Uh, Pentecost comes, and Pentecost, by the way, was the Jewish Festival of Weeks. Um, The the Jews would come from all over the Roman Empire to feast and to show their gratitude to God. Uh, This afforded God the intended and sovereign opportunity for his apostles, which apostle just means sent one, by the way, uh, specifically Peter in the case. So the Holy Spirit comes, Peter goes out, proclaims the message of the gospel, at Pentecost. And what happens, but people, people listen. And not only is he just saying it, but he's actually speaking it in the native tongues of different people. Chances are this particular sermon is not just one, it's what he went around saying to people, because it's Jerusalem gets busy in these festivals, and there's people everywhere. And he goes and he preaches, so much so that people are like, oh, okay, dude, that guy must be drunk. Because he's, spe- he's a Galilean, I can hear his accent, and yet he's speaking to me in Egyptian. And yet he's speaking to me in, uh, in, in Syrophoenician. He's, he's speaking to me in other languages. But it turns out that he's not drunk. It turns out that he's being blessed with a spiritual gift. So, the people actually end up listening, and, and by God's grace, they're saved. They, they, they accept this message. And the number of Christians goes from about 120 to, to around 3,000. Peter, uh, I mean, he's got Billy Graham rivaled. So, uh, essentially what has happened is these people have come from far and wide, and they brought supplies to maybe eat for two days. Right? Maybe they brought enough money, uh, maybe they brought enough food, and they come, and they hear this message, and they end up staying, because, because they hear this. And these are out-of-towners. That would be like Toledo getting surrounded with 3,000 more people than Toledo can actually support. So what ends up happening? What happens with these people? They want to stay. They, they came for a religious rite or a religious act. They came for this festival, but now they're actually being given true religion. They were being told of God's devotion to them, not simply how they need to be devoted to God. That was, by the way, one of the two goals of the festival of weeks, to celebrate the giving of the law. But now, instead of celebrating the giving of the law, they've come and heard of Jesus' fulfilling of the law. And the other goal, by the way, was to be grateful to God for the wheat harvest. And they got a harvest of souls. Uh, But with that in mind, now we're about ready to read our text. Because that background colors how we read it. It, it. It makes us realize what happens when the church goes from 120 people, which 120 people, you can spread. I mean, you only need, what, like 10 people's houses and a couple sleeping bags, and they can sleep on the floor? But but when you go from 120 to 3,000, I I don't think Paul's living space is enough. I mean he's only got one couch, right? <laughs> so with that in mind, we can read our verses. So Acts two 42 to 47, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Day by day, more and more. Now you might be asking why that background was important, right? Who cares? Festival of Weeks. I, I celebrate the Festival of Weeks when I get the bonus check at the end of the year for my job, right? That's my Festival of Weeks. Well, I I mean, if you really think about it, obviously what we need to understand from this text is that the the church is meant to be a hippie commune, uh, sharing everything and living in tents in people's backyards, right? That's what we get from this. That's that's what's prescribed. Um, Also, we should only be eating bread because we can't eat anything other than bread because you can only break bread. Proper interpretation. Um, Now, of course that's not the case. (laughs) We need to have that that full picture painted because because neither of those are true. Man cannot live on bread alone. Let him have steak and let him eat a cup of sass. Join us for breakfast on Tuesdays at Cup of Sass. Uh, (laughs) But but remember, remember the verses we read happened at a specific place, at a specific time, for a specific reason. Paul is just gathering facts and he's presenting them to us. Uh, the Festival of Weeks, again, lasted about two days, so they only had enough money for two days. So instead of them just like going home, they wanted to stay and they wanted to hear more about this good news. They wanted to, they wanted to learn more, and so people that lived there started bringing them in and, and thinking, hey, we got to take care of these folks. Somehow they started selling their possessions to pay for them to live with them for a, for a time. And they were going to the temple day by day. Why? Because it was the Festival of Weeks. And that's where they had determined to gather. That's where all the Jews went in the the Festival of Weeks. And and Pentecost is the the Greek way of putting it. So we're not required to sell everything we own and distribute the proceeds to each other. We're, We're not. That's not a requirement unless the Lord moves us to do that. And in this case, the Lord had moved these people to do that. If we had a family who had a disaster in our church and the Lord moved you to sell some of your fine china or to give give them your spare car, right, or whatever, then then you're doing the prescription of loving the other Christians. But to be a Christian, you don't have to go sell everything you own. That's not the point here. If you sell everything you own, you won't have a house. If you don't have a house, you're going to live on somebody else's couch. You don't have anything else to to sell, to pay for other people. that's That's not the point. But again, as Jesus rebuked the rich man who held to his possessions so tightly that he wasn't willing to repent, Matthew 19, 21, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. The guy walks away sorrowful. Why? Because he loved his stuff. So there is warrant in selling your stuff. But that's, that, this is not a hippie commune. The hippies were not fulfilling Acts 2, 42 to 47. So let's wipe that from our minds, if that's, if that's been the point. Uh, the point here is that the background allows us to interpret the passage properly. So, now let's actually move to our point. What is a church to do? And you'll notice in your bulletin you've got three fill-ins that you get to write. Um... The first first note that we have in Acts 2, 42-47 that's echoed all throughout the New Testament is that a church is to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. That is clear, by the way, uh, throughout all the ages of Christianity. With the actual preservation of this book, it is proof that that is something we should still be doing. We... We uh, the, the New Testament in general is a collection of three things. The Gospels, showing us Jesus' teaching ministry. History and prophecy, which is basically just Acts and Revelation, uh, showing us what the church has, has been through and will go through. And then third, the Apostles' teaching, which is all the epistles collected to show us what the apostles taught. Epistle just means letter, again. I said that last week. But... But that's essentially the construction of the New Testament. And the epistles make up the bulk of the New Testament, preserving these teachings for us who don't have the luxury of having a resident apostle. I mean, I don't know. Have you guys talked to Peter recently? What about John? He lived a pretty long time. No, of course not. It it should be noted here that there are no more apostles um to the to be an apostle, the early church had had uh, this in mind, right? Um, even the successors of the apostles, like Polycarp, which was the successor to the apostle John, he didn't consider himself an apostle. Nobody did. People considered him authoritative because he learned under the apostle John, but they didn't consider him scripturally authoritative. You can actually Google Polycarp, which is spelled like poly, many, and carp like the fish. And you can read his epistle to the Philippians. He wrote a letter to the Philippians uh, encouraging them as they face some persecution. So nobody, nobody who's a serious student of the Bible has ever considered Polycarp canon. But it's cool history. Same with the Desert Fathers, cool history. But devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching is something we still do today, right? We conform our minds to what Jesus' apostles authoritatively, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, have said. That's the whole point of a sermon. That's the whole point of us reading the Bible, is that we're trying to learn, in context, what, what are we to do? How are we to live? How are we to think? The first Christians had the wonderful opportunity again to, to hear the apostles speak in person before they were, you know, all brutally martyred. Of course, um, but they would they would actually probably consider us the lucky ones. We live in a day, not just of unprecedented fear and news media, but also of unprecedented peace. We don't much have to worry about the uprising of bandits from the hills coming and hunting us down because we're Christians. We don't have to worry about. Uh, uh, about somebody poisoning our HVAC system so that we die in here. We don't have to worry about a lot of stuff. They did. They would consider us the lucky ones also because they would say, "Wait, you have all the writings of the apostles?" Not just Peter. I got tired of Peter before. I mean, he's got a he's got a weird drawl. You got you got John too. Oh, I've always wanted to hear John speak. And you've got his words? They would consider us the lucky ones. Indeed, we are blessed. And and we must remember that. We too ought to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. That is what a church should do on Sundays and each day of the week. Why? Because the church is the bride of Christ. We want to look more beautiful to him. We stand under the Holy Spirit's authority for life and practice. Why? Because it's what makes us look beautiful to Christ. That's only done by being subject or submitting to the authority of Scripture. Therefore, the teaching of the apostles. So your first thing again, the, a church is to be, uh, uh, be devoted to the apostles' teaching. What else is a church to do? Well, in verses 42 and 46, we see uh, some form of gathering listed, right? They got together. Uh, we, might, we might stick to the phrasing in, in verse 42 and call this, this prescription fellowship. Why is it a prescription? Because it's actually echoed all throughout the rest of the New Testament. Um, there's two, two locations for fellowship mentioned, though. It's, it's the temple and, and people's houses, people's homes. And this is actually where a little more history might be helpful for for us to determine the the, the real prescription here, right? Um, So in in these days, when Paul is writing Acts, um, Christians weren't so much going to the temple. Why? Because there was a lot of Jewish persecution. Uh, they, they weren't allowed into the temple, and if they were, they were actually sold over to the Roman authorities because Christians said that they worship one king, and that's Jesus. But to the Roman, there's only one king, and that's Caesar. So you were, you were considered a defector if you worshipped uh, Jesus. And that's what became uh, around 67 AD when Nero came into power. That became the primary reason for all the brutal killings of Christians is they worship one king, and it's Jesus, and it's not the Caesar. So they're, they're, they're traitors to the state, and therefore they should be killed. So when Acts was written, they're not meeting in temples. Instead, they're meeting in people's homes. And uh, when, we, when, when we actually look at the, the text in front of us, right, um, 42 to 47 is kind of like an introduction into the next several chapters, uh, where we should probably think that the next four or five chapters are all during the festival of weeks. Uh, you, you read about uh, Peter and John getting arrested, very first Christian arrest besides Jesus, of course, but, uh, but the very first Christian arrests. you read of Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, a lot happened probably during this festival, but you come up to the next real transition. And it's going to be Acts 8, when Saul approves of Stephen's execution. So chances are, these couple pages are all during the same time period. And again, when he's writing, right, Christians don't have a building to gather in. They have to do it secretly. Stephen, Stephen's stoning marked a new age for Christians, and it didn't look good. Fast forward to today, we do have buildings to gather in, right? Um, is is a church is a church building more holy than one of your homes? No, you could still gather in your home and you could still fellowship. That is still okay. That is that that is still biblically solid, a, a biblical thought. And why were they gathering? Well, when you're when you look at uh, uh, verse forty two, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. To the breaking of bread and the prayers. So there was a meal sharing. There, 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 there were prayers for one another, prayers for the saints. As we go through the rest of the New Testament, we find we're not just praying for ourselves, we're praying for all the Christians in the world. That's, that's, that's part of the fellowship. Part of that sharing is meals and prayers. We're commanded, right, through the apostles' teaching to do what the Christians... Uh, In Acts 2.42 and 46 did. We're to gather. We're also to pray. We're commanded to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. James 5.16. To pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints. Ephesians 6.18. Read that in our our Sunday school today. Uh, And we're urged... That supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. 1 Timothy 2.1 So we're supposed to gather and pray. We're supposed to gather and feast. Feast on God's word. Feast literally. Potlucks are a fulfillment of scripture. Praise God. <laughs> so so we're, we're supposed to do that. We're supposed to share our lives together. And I, I, I feel like I'm beating a dead horse, because I keep mentioning this in Bible studies, but this has the assumption that we gather. And gathering always brings up Hebrews 10, 24-25. Uh, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What the author of Hebrews is saying here is not that we have to gather in a church building. An outdoor service is okay. A home gathering is okay. As as Hebrews was written, by the way, Christians were not gathering in the temple, and they weren't gathering in homes. They were hiding in businesses. They were finding alleys to, to meet in. Why? Because Hebrews was written somewhere around AD 70, and Nero starts in AD 67, and so the church is now starting a nationwide persecution. And they are suffering. They didn't build First Apostolic Church of Peter in, 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 in I almost said Smyrna, Texas, but that's not, a, anyway, that's not, that's not the ancient Near East. But, <laughs> but they, didn't, they didn't have an, uh, an Ephesus Church of Jesus, right? They, they didn't have those. They didn't have the luxury of it. The Hebrews is a massive call to persevere. It was a full Bible summary of how everything points to Jesus, why that matters, and why we ought to hold on to him in the midst of trial and suffering. So, how were the Christians at that time meeting? Again, underground. As hidden and possible as possible. With closed curtains. Ain't nobody walking in with their crockpots. Anything that looked Christian was avoided. Every once in a while you hear hear of that uh, that rumor that you you walk up to the door and you draw a part of a fish with your foot and then somebody else finishes the foot. That's possibly true, but it's kind of legend. Because all somebody has to realize is they're drawing the rest of a fish. Uh, (laughs) And then they can be hunted down and killed. So, where should we gather? Well, if we understand Acts we understand the rest of the Bible, if we understand Hebrews correctly, we understand that it's permissible for us to not gather just in the home. The few folks that are watching online are not sinning. If the governor says again, which I hope doesn't happen, that you can only gather in groups of three and a half, I don't know, whatever random number she chooses, um, and, and we have to stop meeting in the building, it's not sin. It would be, however, sin to neglect gathering at all. To not go to a friend's house and watch the service. To, to just say, well, if I can't be where I want to be, I'm, I'm not going to do it. However, what would be wrong is if the governor said, hey, sporting events, shopping malls, stores, as many as possible with social distancing, but churches, 10, with no singing. <laughs> that would be an order where I would smile and happily disobey. (laughs) Yeah, sure, Kate. Um, I, I would happily defy that order and I would do it with a smile on my face. But that's not what Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 is talking about. And this is where I feel like I'm beating a dead horse. It would not condemn gathering in homes, doing smaller groups. It would condemn the, the ethos, the habit of, since I can't meet where I want to meet, I, I won't go. So, And Hebrews 10, 19 to 31, that whole section in summary, by the way, is, is truly talking about local churches acting communally toward individual repentance. That's a, that's a mouthful. What it's trying to say is, is, is that you need to get together. Why? Because you can stir up one another for love and good works. When you don't get together, you are not stirred up for love and good works. That is the summary of it. And Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 is the linchpin of that thought process. If you actually take those verses out, the rest of it doesn't make any sense. So, going back to our text. What is? What else can we determine a church is meant to do? The last point. So your first point, right? Be devoted to the apostles' teaching. Second point, fellowship. You can even put in parentheses potluck. Uh, <laughs> but but the last point, the last thing that I want you to just understand is a is a prescription. Um, sure, we see uh, we see that they're 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 receiving their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having uh, but but but. That should be included in fellowship, right? If you're eating, you should be praising God that you're eating. So you can put that as a sub point under fellowship, but the last prescription I want you to notice is having favor with all the people. Who's the all that it's talking about? It's not the other Christians. This is not about having favor with other Christians at all. It's actually a statement about Christians having favor with outsiders. And there are obviously limitations on this concept, right? When we say all the people, we don't mean every person liked the Christians. How do I know that? Because Peter and John were arrested a chapter later. (laughs) Not everybody liked the Christians. The rulers didn't like them. When you come to Acts Acts 19, right? You've got Demetrius in Ephesus, who's a silversmith. He makes idols, and, uh, and he gets really mad at the Christians, so much so that he causes a riot, and Paul gets put out a window in a basket. He was no peasant, but you know who really got upset at the Christians were the rich folk, and the rulers, and the people that had power. So all the people apparently excludes those, <laughs> but, but the, the prescription here is that we should be having favor with others. Uh, Christians in general are called to have favor with outsiders. Uh, in the words of Paul, again, who suffered from that riot, Romans twelve eighteen. if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He goes on saying, Beloved, meaning Christians, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will help heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome uh, by evil, but overcome evil with good. The response of the gospel is this: With grateful hearts to God, suffer evil and overcome it with good. Uh, again, if our if our governor starts to persecute churches, and she does it with discrimination, oh, yeah, right, whatever. Uh, <laughs> Um, come come to church service. I'll, I'll throw a potluck in your honor, lady. Like that, that's, I will happily, happily welcome you in, um, and I will ask that you socially distance and wear a mask, but I will happily overcome evil with good. But when she discriminates, that's when I'm going to say, okay, all right, yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, here's my address. But... We also, as Christians, shouldn't be rioting like tantruming children, right? Spray-painting slurs on the Capitol building. We shouldn't, we shouldn't respond to, to government overreach with anger and hatred and vitriol and, and, and imprecatory prayers. One of my favorite words. Imprecatory just means like prayers of disaster, right? Uh, may you be smashed by a boulder. <laughs> may a goat come and eat all your good crops. Whatever. Whatever. Whatever it is, that's an imprecatory prayer. We don't spray paint hateful slurs and Bible verses on, on the Capitol building's walls. What do we do? We overcome evil with good by attempting with every rebellious fiber of our sinful hearts to resist being jerks. <laughs> being mean. Instead, we give our enemies something to eat and drink. We show them the dear, sweet love of Jesus. We declare the mystery of the gospel boldly. And we here, we need to be, a, we need to be working towards having favor with others. Uh, we at First Baptist Church of Toledo are predominantly invisible to the people around us. And the ones that we're not invisible to and don't come here, they have some notions of us. That we're uh, that we're stuck up, that we're 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 insensitive, that we're uncaring. But if we have grateful hearts, if we recognize this prescription that we're supposed to try with, with every bit of our might to live peaceably with all, then we ought to take those rebukes with joy. Joy. Why joy? We take them knowing that honestly they might have an air of truth about them. Might not be the whole truth, but it's part of it. And we repent, which is joyful. Why repent? Because we know where we need to go. We realize our sin with contrite hearts, knowing that we aren't supposed to be uncaring, insensitive, stuck-up jerks. We're instead supposed to have favor with all. With grateful hearts to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus, we seek repentance. Again, why Why, Pastor? Because when we start seeking this, we might begin to see the Lord doing what he did in the rest of Acts 2.47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's our goal. That's our hope. That's our joy. So in contrast to the last two weeks, you don't have the fill in the blank. Instead, you have those three bullet points. Be devoted to the Apostles' teaching, number one. Fellowship, a.k.a. potlucks, number two. And three, have favor with others. That's what a church should do. That's what a church does. That's about as summarized as I can imagine of what the question, what does a church do? The specifics of these, by the way, are gloriously endless. Filled with opportunities for us to grow, truly grow. I'm not talking just numerically. There are so many possible ways to do this. Why? Because there's an endless amount of of grace in God, and he can lead us wherever he intends. I promised, by the way, at the beginning of this, that we'd return to the concept of of the church being the bride of Christ. So real quick, why why does the church want to submit to something like Acts 2, 42 to 47. It's because we want to be beautiful for our husband. We have a truly gracious fiance who puts up with a lot. (laughs) He puts up with a lot from me. He puts up with, with a lot collectively from us all. And yet he would never be unfaithful. I mean, the church tries as hard as it can to chase away her fiancé. To quote again one of my professors, uh, the the bride of Christ is an ugly, ugly woman. She's a gossip. She's a slanderer. uh, She's hateful. She's spiteful. She's irreverent. She's ungrateful. And it would take a special man to love her. And thank God that's Jesus Christ, our Lord. (laughs) He is faithful. That mystery is profound. Absolutely profound. He is wonderful. He is our focus. And this is truly good news, friends. Let's pray. Lord, there truly are a number of ways that we could joyfully repent of whatever our, uh, our, our, our history is, that we could joyfully repent of, of, of our troubles, our struggles, the times when we've been misunderstood, which probably outnumber the ways that we've been jerks, is the times that we're misunderstood. But, but Lord, you gloriously weave all those circumstances in the lives of those around us. I pray that it's gloriously for your redemption that you do that that we can stand before our neighbors, that we can stand before Toledo, before, before our friends in Newport, before our friends in this world, and we can say, look at us. We, 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 we want to honor our Lord. We want to live in response to his gospel. So Lord, I pray that you would guide us, that you would lead us even further. As we go back into the Sermon on the Mount starting next week, I, I pray that you would continue to convict us and guide us I pray that you, would, um, that you would work in us a constant repentance. Why? Because we are constantly sinning, Lord. We don't even know it most of the time, and I pray that you would reveal it to us. So guide us, your bride, in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, being the church means that Christ will grasp onto you quickly, strongly, firmly, and we can rest in him. Devote yourselves to the apostles' teaching. Gather in fellowship. Enjoy one another. And, uh, and make sure that you, as to the best of your ability, live peaceably with all. Thus glorify your Savior. Go in peace, saints.